Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School, Idi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time joining in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that we exist for you. So if you're wrestling with a tough leadership question, maybe you would like to get some advice from some of our faculty, or you just know of a great person who would make an awesome guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I well, last week, we started a conversation with Sally Helgeson, who Forbes identified her as world's premier in women's leadership. She's an international speaker, leadership consultant, and author of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from the Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. We focused in on a couple of these habits, and uh, so if you haven't listened or if you want to catch up and get the foundation, go back and check out part one because that's going to set the foundation for part two. So Sally, we just want to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I really enjoyed our session last week. So I want to dive right in. You know, last week we kind of wrapped up the episode with, you know, hitting some of these uh, habits that, you know, are holding back and, you know, kind of under this thesis that, you know, we use a lot of these habits to get ourselves into leadership, but then these habits actually become the very things that prevent us from, uh, you know, going to our next level. So before we really dive in, kind of just briefly describe that concept of these habits being what hinders you as, you know, you get into leadership. Well, they're very different things serve you at different uh, periods in your career. So for example, this overvaluing expertise, you know, really establishing your expertise is very important early in your career. Uh, but a great career is always built on three legs and those are expertise and visibility and connections. So if you're over-focused on expertise, then as you try to move higher, you won't have the visibility or the connections that will help you to make that move. So it's a, it's a very natural process that earlier in your career, uh, certain things will be advantageous to you and really helpful to you. Um, but it's also important to know how those things can then undermine you as you either try to move into a position or if you do, they can really hold you back in terms of being able to demonstrate uh, the sort of leadership that is expected of you at a, in a top position. You know, and in this, uh, one of the prem- premises or one of the habits is, you know, putting that job first before your career. You know, what is the difference between a job and then what's the difference between a career so we can understand which lane that we're actually operating out of? We're always operating in two lanes. We're always operating in the lane of what is the job that I have now and what does it take to do a really good job in this job? We're also always in the lane of how does this job serve my career development? Where do I want to go? What do I ultimately want my contribution to be? And where is the alignment then between this job and what I see as my larger career. One of the things that I've been working with women leaders all around the world for 30 years, and this pops up consistently, believing that doing a great job, checking all the boxes, fulfilling every single thing, doing a perfect job in the job I have now will 
translate into my being promoted, into my developing the career that I want to. And it often doesn't work that way. One of the things you can really get trapped if you put too much of your energy into doing a spectacular job at the job you have, you can end up not being promoted just because you're perceived of as invaluable. I worked with a woman in uh, Boston in a technology field. And she said, she was a perfect example of this habit. She said about a year ago, my boss said to me that I was thinking about recommending you for this other job. He said, but I realized you, I can't lose you. You are irreplaceable, the job you do. And he said, so I just want you to know that I didn't selfishly uh, because I really need you. And she said she went away from that and she thought, oh, I feel wonderful. He really values me, he thinks I'm terrific. And she said, it took me a while before I realized, does that mean that I'm going to be in this job for the rest of my life? Because I've made myself invaluable. And, um, and she really felt discouraged at that. So the next time a job came, a posting came in her company, she wanted to stay with her company, a posting came for a position that she really, really wanted. She walked into his office and said, I know you place a high value on me, but this is what I would like to do. Will you help me? Will you help? Can I engage you in helping me get this next position? And he said, of course I will. She was sure he was gonna say, no, absolutely not, I need you. You know, he understands the reality. And um, so she was able to turn him into an ally in that way. So we always want to be aware, you know, we want to do, we want to balance doing a great job and with developing our career. One other thing, and this happens with women particularly, but I've seen it happen with men as well, that keeps us over-invested in our job is we feel so much loyalty to our boss or we feel so much loyalty to our team. We feel like they couldn't survive without us. I can't leave, I can't leave them in the lurch. Um, and rather than thinking, oh wow, this could really be helpful for my team if I move on higher because then they will have a connection with a person at that level. You know, Sally, that's a great example of how to overcome that particular habit. There's another habit in the book that you have that you label the disease to please. Mm-hmm. Um, help us understand that one. The disease to please. And I'm very proud to say this is the one habit I don't have. And I'm very glad. But I know a lot of great, great people who do. The disease to please is when you you prioritize being seen as a wonderful or good person over every other aspect in your career. This is a recipe for keeping yourself stuck. I worked with a woman, was coaching a woman who was in a major hospital um, uh, system. And she was so, people loved her. She had done all the community relations stuff and the whole community loved her and they were crazy about her. And then she moved on to a higher position, but people in the community, oh, we still want you involved. We want you involved with the, you know, some of the care decisions about our parents. You know, we we really depend on you. And she felt so much responsibility toward them 
that that she was still showing up for that job, even though she now had another job because she felt she said, I can't disappoint them. They've really come to depend upon me. She felt good because they liked her so much and valued her so much. And that's a good thing. Being a wonderful person is a good thing. But uh, what she, of course, didn't realize is that, first of all, she was undermining her ability to be as effective as she could in her new job. And secondly, the person who had her old job wasn't getting any training or any opportunity to shine themselves because she was in the guise of being a wonderful person swooping in and getting in the way of everything. So those are the kinds of things that can happen. And, you know, again, it goes back to that thing of, of not trying to overmanage perception. When you show up in an organization, it's a great thing to be liked. It's a great thing to have people think, oh, so-and-so is a wonderful person. But it's not your chief priority there. It's not what is going to help you make the best contribution to the organization or to the world. And it is not what will help you build the most effective career path. That doesn't mean you're not gonna be a wonderful person. It just means it's not your priority. And the disease to please is really when your priority is being seen as just helpful and empathic and a great listener and a wonderful human being in every possible situation rather than What's most effective here? Talk about this concept of, you know, in my mind, it appears that if you're always trying to be positive and trying to please, eventually it may come off some point as disingenuous. Maybe, yeah. you know, you're trying to hide certain emotions that, you you know, you don't want to speak your mind, you know. So talk about how that perception of maybe being disingenuous also can be a stumbling block with having this disease to please always. Yes, definitely it can. And you're not either a wonderful, positive person who's just fabulous in every single situation and a great listener, et cetera, et cetera, at all times. You're not either that or a person who's negative and difficult to please and demanding, et cetera. There's a huge range in between. And you want the flexibility to be able to choose how you're going to show up based on what's going to be most effective. And I agree with you. If you are always Mr. or Miss Positive, they're going to become skeptical of what you have to say. I think that happened to, my, to me earlier in my career. I was always the glass uh, half full person. Um, you know, I published a book in 1990 called The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which kind of you know, gives you an idea of how what a positive lens I was looking at back in 1990. Um, and I, you know, my quest when I showed up to do a, a leadership program, uh, to speak at a conference or to work with a, a group in a company was always to emphasize the positive. And at some point, I began to think, you know, my over, my exclusive focus on the positive here is undermining my ability to recognize that some people here may have had very, very painful and difficult experiences. So I need to get that in hand. It's not just about me being this effervescent, super positive human being. It's about bringing a positive uh, framework to things, but not getting overly invested in in what I'm trying to do in that way. 
you know, finally, uh, the last uh, habit I want to focus on because I would love people to go and if they really want more to go grab this book and then we'll we'll take our conversations kind of how this relates. But I want to focus on um, to this the one habit of speaking with emotion, you know, because this this I don't think just solely plagues women, even though women tend or may operate more out of emotion. I know there's a lot of uh, men in leadership who know maybe they're in a tough time, maybe they're in a crisis. Um, maybe there's something that happens where they'll kind of lead out of an anger or an emotional state instead of kind of getting centered. So talk about the speaking while emotional being a habit that helps in the beginning, but then becomes a barrier later on. You know, speaking while emotional uh, has some advantages in that it conveys the fact that you are passionate about an issue. Um, so there's, you know, in certain cultures, American culture being one, there's often a premium put on, you know, being a being passionate about something. So, so we give some license to people to bring their emotions, and that can be a very positive thing. Nobody wants somebody who's robotic. Uh, however. We need to discipline the emotions that we're feeling at the time that we're talking or making a presentation. We need to at least have an awareness of what those are. In, in the world of organizations, men usually only have permission to demonstrate the emotion of anger. They can demonstrate the emotion of elation. Hey, we nailed it. Yes, that's that's correct. But but men have license to exhibit anger often if they're at the senior level, usually not below it. Um, whereas women tend to be often more comfortable uh, exhibiting some level of vulnerability, of frustration, of fear, of stress. They're not as uh, reluctant to exhibit those kinds of emotions. But what I've seen is those emotions can serve you very, very well in terms of deciding how you want to address and pursue things. But that if you're speaking while you're feeling extremely emotional, you probably are filtering a lot of information out you're filtering out information about how people are responding and reacting because you're so invested in and, and wrapped up in your own emotion. And that emotion is an enormous plus for leaders, but only when we are able to use it in an intentional way as opposed to reacting and being in the moment. If a person sees himself or herself in this case, in through a lot of these habits, um, multiple ones, how do you make a decision where to begin without being overwhelmed? How do you figure out, I'm going to start here so that I don't have to deal with everything all at once? I'm so glad you asked that, Idy, because that's one of the things that I get asked I think everywhere I go, where do I start? I see myself in five habits. I have seven. I have nine of these habits. You know, I don't know where to start. In a way, it almost doesn't matter where you start. Start with one thing. Start with one habit or even a part of a habit. One thing or even a part of a habit in one situation and decide to work on that 
And then once you feel comfortable with it, you can move on. This is a lifelong developmental exercise. Um, and I think it's best to start either with something that you see as an immediate problem. I've got a, I have a promotion coming up. I've had feedback that I learn, have to learn to be a more effective communicator, that the minimizing, the kind of minimizing you did when you said, oh no, it was my team that did it, uh, that that's not gonna serve me well. So the position I'm, I'm moving toward, I think this habit could be a problem. So I'm gonna address that or just decide to address whatever's easiest so that you can do it. We, we also have a real template in the book for how to do it. That's great advice. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book is you have this thing called a to-don't list. We all know about to-do lists, but I absolutely love the to-don't list. Could you explain what that is and maybe give us an example? Well, you know, really, that was for my own practice because I am, you know, a very good doobie who always has a exact list for every single day. We've got multiple lists. And then I have my day list, all the things I'm doing. And I, I have to check everything off and feel satisfied basically on how much I was able to check off. And what I began to realize is it makes me feel a little stressed. And it makes me feel also a little bit robotic, because it's as if my day is just an opportunity for checking things off the list. So what I decided to do for myself uh, in order to try to get better at not doing that was to develop a to-don't list of things of have of not just so much habits, but of activities that I actually don't need to do that day. I can either do them another day, I can reschedule them, or it's a habitual way of reacting that I need to let go of so that I would actually have a list that I could look at of things that I did not want to do that day that would make me feel more relaxed, less stress, and as I said, just kind of less robotic. I once Years ago, read a, a wonderful description. A woman said, it was very busy, and she said, sometimes I feel like my body is just a vehicle for carrying my head to the computer. <laughs> and I thought, that is exactly how I never want to feel. But when we get too caught up in our to-do list, we can feel that way. You know, I'm just here to show up for my list. So that to-don't list has been a very, very powerful practice for me and I think for anybody who's a perfectionist or for anybody who tends to overvalue their expert their own expertise it can be a really important exercise you know finally as we wrap up this episode you know though the the book is titled how women rise you know and it has these habits you know for women to overcome you know it there's opportunities or there's habits that even men possess. So talk about how this book isn't simply just for women, but you know, talk about what men can gain uh, by reading and, and going through the journey of your book. Ah, that's such a great question. Very important. And I don't think I realized how helpful this book was going to be for men when I published it. When I look at the habits and behaviors, I thought of them to begin with, these are the habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women and hold them back 
from achieving their full potential. Yes, that's true. But what I now see is that these are to some degree the habits that got left out of Marshall's original book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, because so many of the male leaders he worked with were extremely extroverted, often quite overconfident, um, very, in you know, one track mind invested in their own success and wildly successful leaders. But many of them, you know, did not struggle with things like overvaluing expertise. So what I've come to see is that this really does have a cross-gender application, you could say, uh, and that, and, and it's really some of the habits that got left out of Marshall's book. I've also heard from the day the book came out from, for example, African-American man or Latino man, I really identify with a lot of these. And that's because they've had some of the same experiences that women have had. They've been, they've had their expertise questioned too much. So they feel they have to overinvest in doing that. So that's been good. But the other thing is, I think that it's really, I found it very helpful for male leaders to read this book and it helps them understand by understanding what can get in women's ways. They can be better mentors, sponsors, champions, and supporters, more skilled uh, with women. And, you know, things have changed. I've been doing this 30 years. I've been in women's leadership 30 years. And I used to go to programs and uh, the sponsors or the, the, the company was, was holding them said, oh, there are going to be men there. There'll be men there. And I'd say, okay, okay. There would be about 20% men. There were, you know, five men. Okay, fine. That doesn't happen anymore. When I do these programs and there are women's leadership programs, lots of men show up. In fact, I did one in Las Vegas at a big construction conference that was about, you know, uh, developing women leaders in the construction industry. And I showed up at my room and there was about 70% men there. I couldn't believe it. And I said, what are you here for? And they said, you know what? Please don't waste our time telling us that it's important that we develop women leaders. We get that. We need that. Help us understand how to be better at it. And they said, we were really inspired by the idea of having a better understanding of how women hold themselves back so that we can help them move forward. So in all those ways, it's really been interesting to watch the response from men. Again, the book is called How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job Available Anywhere Books Are Sold. Sally, thank you so much for honoring us with your time. It's been such an honor talking with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed working with both of you so much. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Heidi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.